This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is dealing with hard times. In the first half, Richard G. Scott shares his address to the lonely and misunderstood. Then in the second half, Jeffrey R. Holland speaks on For Times of Trouble. I don't honestly know to whom this message is specifically intended, nor to what portion of those present it directly applies. I am confident, however, that if I am supported by your faith and prayers, it is delivered so that I can give expressions to the deep feelings of my heart. This message will be of significant benefit to some who need it, provided they apply consistently in their lives the principles emphasized. I do not say this with any degree of personal pride, but in humble recognition of the experience I have had in its present preparation. Seldom have I struggled as long and as hard to crystallize the feelings of my heart as I have on this occasion. But finally those sweet, quiet promptings of the Spirit came, which give me confidence to speak with conviction and assurance. To those among us that are struggling with feelings of inadequacy or of being left out or being misunderstood or not appreciated. Each passing day I am aware that there are many youth in the Church who understand the teachings of the Savior and apply them faithfully, consistently in their lives. They continue to grow in strength and self-confidence and to find their obedience is rewarded with happiness peace, and self-assurance. I am also aware that there are significant numbers of youth who are striving to identify a path that will bring them satisfaction, a sense of belonging, of self-worth. Some have an intellectual knowledge of the gospel principles but have not incorporated them completely in their own lives. They live partially or superficially the teachings of the Savior, and as a consequence, do not receive the fullness of direction that can come from the Lord, nor the ability to achieve blessings that result from being fully, willingly obedient to His commandments. They have not yet discovered the power and inspiration that come from the Lord to aid all of us in the difficult experiences of life. Such individuals strive mightily to face each day's challenge on their own, and the encounter difficulties. It is because I now know that they see only part of the picture and can be stealthily led by Satan down erroneous paths that with deep love and empathy and with all the conviction of my soul I wish to share some personal experiences which a kind and loving Lord has used to help me understand the meaning and power of some of the principles of the gospel. I, too, have had such feelings of loneliness and of being left out and not appreciated. I was born in a home where my father was not a member of the Church, and my mother was what by today some would categorize as being inactive. During my early childhood, I did in no way understand the significance of the fact 
that there was no priesthood-bearing patriarch nor consistent teaching of pure gospel principles in our home. Yet no son could have loved more or been more proud of my father than I was then and I am now. He taught his five boys by noble example the importance of industry, integrity, education, manual skills, trust, and obedience. We gain self-confidence through the practice of these worthy traits. Because he traveled frequently and left our precious mother alone for significant periods of time to raise five active, exuberant boys, we discovered in her an amazing, marvelous combination of love, patience, firmness, and diligence. She was and continues to be more a friend and companion than anything else. I should add that the Lord has since greatly blessed our family. Dad is a sealer in the Washington Temple, and Mother serves as a temple worker at his side. Both provide powerful examples of spirituality for each of us. During my youth, through kind, understanding bishops, patient home teachers, and other members, the five boys were encouraged to attend Church to participate in its activities. We did so, although at times reluctantly. I remember now with sadness the times when, at separation for Sunday school classes, I would slip out the back door for a walk in the park. There were, however, times when I listened to the teachings in class. I am sure that if anyone would have questioned my testimony and understanding of the gospel, I would fiercely have defended as being strong and vigorous. Only from the perspective of time and the marvelous experiences of later, more active participation in Church programs, do I now realize that I knew very, very little of the true meaning of the gospel plan. I participated in Church activities but somehow felt I was always at the periphery. I would approach mutual activities daydreaming of glorious evening, of dancing with the most popular girls in the ward. The reality of each evening was quite different. As I sat in the sidelines and watched others enjoying themselves, I felt somehow left out, not a part of the central group. The same occurred in school. Though I felt comfortable in the academic activities, the social and sport activities left me feeling alone and unwanted. It wasn't until a lot later in life that I realized that it was largely my fault. I have since learned that no one can demand love and respect or require that the bonds of friendship and appreciation be extended as an unearned right. These blessings must be earned. They come from personal merit, concern for others, selfless service, and worthy example. Qualify one for such respect. All my rationalization that others had formed select groups and knowingly ruled out my participation was largely a figment of my imagination. Had I practiced correct principles, I need not have ever felt alone. Well did President McKay repeatedly observe, Every man, every person radiates what he or she is. Every person is a recipient of radiation. Where proper gospel principles are observed, that radiation invites friendship and trust. 
Where lacking, there is a negative, unpleasant radiation that closes the doors to righteous companionship. During my last year at the university, I looked forward to the prospects of a fine professional future. I had my life very well planned and outlined. Then a kind and thoughtful Lord placed a bombshell in my little world. Her name was Janine Watkins. Her father's call to the Senate had brought her to Washington, D.C., where I lived. The more I knew her, the more fascinated I became, and each opportunity to be with her deepened the growing love within my heart. One evening, as we conversed about important things of life, she innocently said, When I marry, I'll marry in the temple to a returned missionary. That struck me to the core. It began a process of reflection and contemplation and prayer that resulted in my receiving a call as a missionary in Uruguay. I thought myself ill-prepared to teach the gospel to anyone. I had an intellectual understanding of some of the gospel principles that I recognized needed to be converted into a heart-centered, Holy Ghost-inspired, burning testimony of truth. I struggled to communicate to the Lord the feelings of gratitude, for the privilege of service, for the blessing of righteous parents, for the love of one of his most precious handmaidens. I asked him to help me to be an effective servant in his hands. I strained to forget self, struggled to help others, and in the process the skeleton of teachings I had received took on new life and meaning. I discovered that we are not left alone to face the challenges of life, but can receive guidance and strength from a loving, understanding God in heaven. I bathe my pillows with tears, pleading for the mercy of the Lord to forgive a wayward soul or to fortify a family in need. I pled that a heart could be softened or a struggling father could be given a personal witness of truth and discovered the breadth, the limitless breadth of love. Familiar scriptures through prayer and application gained new depths of understanding and appreciation. I had read the words many times, and how they took on new meaning. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing. For charity never faileth. Wherefore cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever, and whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. 
What a priceless message for any that would enjoy the comforting circle of friendship. How I wanted then, as I do now, to share those exquisite feelings of love and appreciation for belonging. There were then, as there are now, constantly new lessons. Well do I remember the first time when I, as I pled with the Lord in solemn prayer for the help and guidance and feeling of support that I'd come to cherish, that there was no answer. Rather, I felt a barrier, an insurmountable wall. I reviewed my life, my feelings, my acts, all that could affect such communication and found no problems. It was not until after much more purposeful struggling that there came the clarification. What I had felt was not a wall, but a giant step, an opportunity to rise to a higher spiritual plane an opportunity evidencing trust that I would obey correct principles without the necessity of constant reinforcement. After more effort, the peaceful, comforting presence of the Spirit returned. I wish I had some magic wand that would allow me to touch the hearts of each to whom this message is intended and communicate the experience that flowed from a loving Father since that time. But I cannot. However, I can mention four principles that I have come to recognize as the foundation of happiness and growth and the secure feeling of companionship with the Lord. These four principles have brought the deepest feeling of worthwhileness, peace, and happiness into my own life. The Lord has established these cornerstones in His internal plan, and each one is essential. All work in harmony together and reinforce one another. And when they are coupled with diligence and consistency, they produce strength of character and increasing ability to convert the challenges of life into stepping stones to happiness now and forever. They are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His program. Repentance to rectify the consequences of mistakes by omission or commission. Obedience to the commandments of the Lord to provide strength and direction in our lives. And selfless service to enrich our daily existence. Satan also knows that these principles, if observed consistently, will render an individual increasingly resistant to his temptations. He has developed a comprehensive plan to undermine or destroy each one of them. For example, to dispose of faith, Satan would plant and cultivate in each one of us the seeds of selfishness, for he knows that if left unchecked, they will grow into a monster that can consume and destroy the divine spirit in man. Selfishness is at the root of sin. It reinforces destructive habits that produce a dependence on chemical or physical stimulants that destroy the mind and body. Selfishness leads to unrighteous acts that debauch and deprave the soul. Satan's program is based on immediate gratification of selfish desires. Participate now and pay later. Yet the full, terrible consequences of payment are never revealed 
until it is tragically late. The Spirit of the Lord can overpower the stifling effect of selfishness. That Spirit comes with faith, repentance, obedience, and service. Some of us divert our best efforts from constructive accomplishment by investing them in mental anguish and continual worry. The Lord has taught me a great lesson about worry that I would like to share with you today. After a wonderful full-time mission where everything that has subsequently proven to be of eternal value in my life began to mature, I was sealed in the temple to my lovely Janine. She had fulfilled her mission while I was serving mine. We began life together with every expectation of happiness, having some understanding of the application of the principles of the gospel in our lives. I was blessed, I am convinced, through the kindness of the Lord, to obtain a job in a new, highly developmental pioneer effort to place a nuclear power plant in a submarine. The work was fascinating, challenging, and absorbing when combined with the natural growth experiences that come from the formation of a new home and church assignments, I found each day fully occupied. Within eight months, I was in the office of a doctor, being carefully examined for the presence of ulcers. For weeks, each night I would return home from work with a severe headache. And only after a long, quiet period of isolation could I calm my nerves sufficiently to sleep briefly and return to work the next day. I began to prayerfully consider my plight. It was ridiculous. All I wanted to do was to be a worthy husband and father and to carry out honorably my Church and professional assignments. My best efforts produced frustration, worry, and illness. In time, I was prompted to divide mentally and physically where possible all of the challenges and tasks and assignments given to me into two categories. First, those for which I had some ability to control and resolve. I put these into a mental basket called concern. Second, all the rest of the things that were either brought to me or I imagined I had responsibility to carry out but for which I had no control. I put these in a basket called worry. I realized that I could not change them to any significant degree, so I studiously strived to completely forget them. The items in the basket marked concern were ordered in priority. I conscientiously tried to resolve them to the best of my ability. I realized that I could not always fulfill all of them on schedule or to the degree of competence desired, but I did my conscientious best. Occasionally, as I sat in my office, I'd feel my stomach muscles tighten and tension overcome me. I would cease whatever activity I was engaged in and with earnest prayer for support, concentrate on relaxing and overcoming the barrier that worry produced in my life. Over a period of time, these efforts were blessed by the Lord. I again came to understand how the Lord is willing to strengthen, fortify, guide, and direct every phase of life. The symptoms of illness passed, and I learned to face tasks under pressure.
Why is there such emphasis in the world today on things? When things become an end unto themselves, the object of our effort, not tools to be used to reach greater, more noble goals, they become a part of Satan's plan to deflect us from the Lord's program. They can lead us carefully down to hell. Things do not produce happiness on earth, nor do they provide exaltation. Material things are to be respected for their value as tools. Every artist, surgeon, or writer needs tools. They become instruments for greater good and should not at any time become the ultimate goal of life. Much of life's disappointments come from looking beyond the mark, from seeking success and happiness where it cannot be found. When wealth, position, influence, and power become the measure of success in life, we should not be disappointed when their attainment does not produce the satisfaction and blessings promised for fulfillment of the commandments of the Lord. The Savior declared as His work and glory to bring the past, the immortality, and eternal life of man. He enthroned love for one another, service to a neighbor, and building the kingdom of God for His glory and majesty as noble, worthy goals that produce rewards beyond all power of speech to express. Mormon gives us precious insight when he declared, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given unto every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge that is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and believe not in Christ, and to deny him, and to serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge that it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. I have obtained a personal witness that the true monument to an individual is worthy accomplishment, not mounds of paper plans or hordes of accumulated possessions. The eternal progress we attain in our life and contribute to accomplish in the lives of others are measure enough for the worthwhileness of our efforts here on earth. No matter who we are, what lofty position we hold, or powerful influence we wield, these things in and of themselves are of no lasting moment. Rather, how well we serve as instruments in the hands of the Lord to accomplish His divine will, or how devotedly we obey His commandments and worthily we receive His ordinances. In the final analysis, all success can be measured by how effectively we can interpret and accomplish the will of our Father in Heaven in our own lives, the lives of our family and loved ones, and the lives of His other children we are blessed to serve.
There are those about us on every side who would justify taking a path contrary to that of the Lord because they feel rejected. Oh, how essential it is to touch such a heart and have it feel the expanding influence of the Holy Ghost and show to such an individual how every problem of life can be corrected when the gospel flows into the life. May God bless each of us to appreciate our heritage, the privilege of attending this glorious university, the great honor of being children of our Father in heaven with testimonies of truth. May we share it with those in need, I humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Dealing with Hard Times. We've just heard from Richard G. Scott. After the break, we'll return with Jeffrey R. Holland for For Times of Trouble. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Dealing with Hard Times. Next is Jeffrey R. Holland, Commissioner of the Church Educational System of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled For Times of Trouble. I wish to speak of a problem that I believe to be a universal problem and which can at any given hour strike anywhere on campus faculty, staff, administration, especially the student body. I believe it is a form of evil. At least I know it can have damaging effects that block our growth, dampen our spirit, diminish our hope, and leave us susceptible and vulnerable to other more conspicuous evils. I address it here this morning because I know of nothing Satan uses quite so cunningly or cleverly in his work on a young man or a young woman in your present circumstance. I speak of doubt, especially of self-doubt, and of discouragement and of despair. In doing so, I don't wish to suggest that there aren't plenty of things in the world to be troubled by. In our lives individually and collectively, there certainly are challenges to our happiness. I watch an early morning news broadcast while I shave, and then I read a daily newspaper. That's enough to ruin anyone's day, and by then it's only 6.30 in the morning. With all of this waiting for us, we're tempted, as W.C. Fields once said, to smile first thing in the morning and get it over with. (laughs) But my concerns for you today are not the national and the international ones. I wish to speak a little more personally of those matters which do not make headlines in the New York Times but may be important in your personal journals. I'm anxious this morning about your problems with school and with love and with finances and with the future, about your troubles concerning a place in life and the value of your contribution, if any, about your private fears regarding where you're going and whether you'll ever get there. Against a backdrop of hostages and high prices, I wish to speak more personally of you and fortify you, if I'm able, against doubt, especially self-doubt and discouragement and despair. I come this morning to attack double-digit depression. 
In doing so, however, I wish at the outset to make a distinction F. Scott Fitzgerald once made, that trouble has no necessary connection with discouragement. Discouragement has a germ of its own, as different from trouble as arthritis is different from a stiff joint. Now, troubles we've all got, but the germ of discouragement, to use Fitzgerald's word, is not in the trouble. It is in us, or more precisely, I believe it is in Satan, the prince of darkness, the father of lies. And he would have it be in us. It's frequently a small germ, hardly worth going to the health center for. But it will work, and it will grow, and it will spread. In fact, it can become almost a habit, a way of living and thinking, and there the greatest damage is done. Then it takes an increasingly severe toll on our spirit, for it erodes the deepest religious commitments we can make, those of faith and hope and charity. We turn inward and look downward, and these greatest of Christ-like virtues are damaged or at the very least impaired. We become unhappy, and soon we make others unhappy, and before long Lucifer laughs. As with any other germ, a little preventive medicine ought to be practiced in terms of those things that get us down. There is a line from Dante which says, The arrow seen before cometh less rudely. President John Kennedy put a variation of that thought into one of his State of the Union messages. He said, The time to repair the roof is when the sun is shining. The Boy Scouts say it best of all. Be prepared. That isn't just cracker barrel wisdom with us. It's theology. Prepare ye, prepare ye. Angels shall fly through the midst of heaven, crying with a loud voice, Prepare ye, prepare ye. And if you are prepared, you shall not fear. And fear is part of what I wish to oppose this morning. The scriptures teach that preparation, prevention, if you will, is perhaps the major weapon in your arsenal against discouragement and self-defeat. For example, if as a student you are like I was, you may be discouraged over money matters. And almost everyone is, at least some of the time. A recent national study indicated that financially related problems outranked all other factors in marital difficulty by a margin of three to one. And the pressure can be about that great on single students as well. If that shared misery is any consolation to you, take heart. You have friends. From the day I walked into my first college classroom until I staggered out the exit of my last, a period of time stretching over 12 years and four degrees, I was responsible for every cent of my education. I know that many in this audience are getting through school exactly the same way. Part-time jobs, loans, heavy summers, working spouses, an almost desperate plea for scholarships, postponed personal comforts, and all the rest. These things can be troublesome. But you have an obligation, to yourself if no one else, to see that they are not destructive. Prepare. The arrow seen before cometh less rudely. Take advantage at this tender age to learn to use a budget, to sit down at, at a table spread with your debts, and come to grips with the economic facts of life. It's none too soon if you've made it to college and have still not had to establish some personal priorities to decide what you will have at the expense of some things you will not have. Get it down on paper and deal with it there. That's the counsel we give to husbands and wives, and the same solution works for others. 
The alternative is to leave it churning in your stomach and your head and your heart, all of which are susceptible to their own forms of ulcer. I see the Brethren labor over the wise use of the Church's resources. I see President Oaks labor over it for the university. I hope soon to see someone labor over it for the nation. You can, con- <laughs> you can consider it part of a very valuable education to labor over it in your own life. Plan, prepare, budget, work, save, sacrifice, spend cheerfully on things that matter, smile at an old pair of shoes, pay your tithing, cherish a used book. Though some of you may be living in almost desperate financial straits, I promise you there is a way. Such times may be burdensome, such sacrifice may be hard, but it does not have to lead, in your case must not lead, to despair and destruction and defeat. In the words of Henry David Thoreau, most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only dispensable, but they're positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. Love your life, poor as it is. The setting sun is reflected from the windows of the almshouse as brightly as it is from a rich man's abode. Now, no one here need be so dramatic as to peer at me out of an almshouse. But you may be going without some things. You may even consider yourself to be poor. Well, love your life, poor as it is. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Quite apart from the financial challenge, schoolwork can be quite a drag. Hold your applause, please. (laughs) I suppose it's fair to say that math and English and economics and zoology can be discouraging on certain days, especially as finals approach. But a little preparation can work wonders here as well. Otherwise, it's the night before the papers due or the morning before the afternoon exam. And despair distills upon us as the dews from heaven. I plead with you in making your university experience a pleasant and rewarding one, work conscientiously in the early weeks, and you'll work much more cheerfully at the end. I remember handing in a paper to Dean Bruce B. Clark, who sits on the stand, who was at the time the teacher of an English literature class I was taking. I loved the class, knew from the first day of instruction that three short papers would be due on clearly stated dates during the semester. Yet I left those papers, in every case, I think, Dean Clark, until the night before they were due. I say that as if he didn't already know it. I remember Dean Clark handing one of them back to me, saying something like this, Jeff, you had the makings of a pretty good paper here. It's too bad you didn't spend any time on it. I was devastated. Here was the chairman of my major department, teaching only one class, that term as I remember, the very symbol of my academic hopes and the dreams for the B.A. at BYU, saying you didn't work very hard. Oh, I'd work hard, all right, from nine o'clock the night before until three that morning. I didn't stop. I hardly breathed. Now, my young brothers and sisters, I deserved to be devastated. I should have been devastated. It could have been a good paper. Perhaps that's the thing that discourages me more than anything else. You see, I discouraged me. 
I discouraged myself. Remember, dear Brutus, the fault is not in our stars, it is in ourselves. And that's the worst kind of despair, the kind of self-despising that eats at our image and crushes our hopes. It isn't the class, and it isn't the teacher, and it isn't the paper. It never is. I should have done it better. I should have been at work sooner. I should have written a draft or two and then left it alone for a while. I should have gone back to it in freshness and strength. I might even have asked for some suggestions. I should have reworked it and shaped it and fine-tuned it over several rewritings. At the end, I should have been working with a scalpel. As it was, I delivered one butchered idea, the meat axe still dripping as I walked into class. <laughs> and furthermore, you don't type very well at three in the morning. <laughs> the point is, with school, as with money or marriage or professions or any hope or any dream, prepare, plan, work, sacrifice, rework, spend cheerfully time as well as money on things that matter and things that are of worth. Carry the calm and wear the assurance of having done all you could do with what you had. If you work hard and prepare earnestly, it will be very difficult for you to wear down or give in or give up. If you labor with faith in God and in yourself and in your future, you will have built upon a rock which, when the winds blow and the rains come, and surely they will, you shall not fall. Of course, some things are not under your control. Some disappointments come regardless of your effort and your preparation, for I believe God wishes us to be strong as well as good. There, too, I say, love your life, poor as it is. Drive even these experiences into the corner, painful though they may be, and learn from them. In this, too, you have friends through the ages in whom you can take comfort and with whom you can form timeless bonds. Thomas Edison devoted ten years and all of his money to developing the nickel-alkaline storage battery at a time when he was almost penniless. Through that period of time, his small record and film production was supporting the storage battery effort. Then one night, the terrifying cry of fire echoed throughout the film plant. Spontaneous combustion had ignited some chemicals. And within moments, all of the packing compounds, the celluloid for the record, film and other flammable goods had gone up with a roar. Fire companies from eight towns arrived, but the fire and heat was so intense and the water pressure so low that the hoses had no effect. Edison was 67 years old. That is no age to begin anew. His daughter was frantic, wondering if he were safe, wondering if his spirits were broken, wondering how he would handle a crisis such as this at his age. She saw him running toward her. He spoke first. He said, Where's your mother? Go get her. Tell her to get her friends. They'll never see another fire like this as long as they live. <laughs> At 5.30 the next morning, with the fire barely under control, he called his employees together and announced, We're rebuilding. One man was told to lease all the machine shops in the area, another to obtain a wrecking crane from the Erie Railroad Company. Then, almost as an afterthought, he said, Oh, by the way, does anybody know where we can get some money? Virtually everything you now recognize as a Thomas Edison contribution to your life came after that disaster. Please remember, trouble has no necessary connection with discouragement. 
discouragement has a germ of its own. If you are trying hard and living right and things still seem burdensome and difficult, take heart. Others have walked that way before you. Do you feel unpopular or different or outside the inside of things? Read Noah again. Go out there and take a few whacks on the side of your ark and see what popularity was like 2500 B.C. Does the wilderness stretch before you in a never-ending sequence of semesters? Read Moses again. Calculate the burden of fighting with the pharaohs and then a 40-year assignment in Sinai. Some tasks take time. Accept that. But as the scripture says, they come to pass. They do end. We will cross over Jordan eventually. Others have proven it. I stand before you as a living symbol that anyone can make it through school, fill a mission, and get a job. Are you afraid people don't like you? Has health been a problem? Do you feel untalented or incapable or inferior? Would it help you to know that everyone else feels that way too, including the prophets of God? Moses initially resisted his destiny, pleading that he was not eloquent in language. Jeremiah thought himself a child and was afraid of the faces he would meet. And Enoch? I ask you all to remember Enoch as long as you live. This is the young man who, when called to a seemingly impossible task, said, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight? I am but a lad, and all the people hate me, and I am slow of speech. But Enoch was a believer. He stiffened his spine and squared his shoulders and went stutteringly on his way. Plain old, ungifted, inferior Enoch. And this is what the angels came to write of him. And so great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord. And the earth trembled and the mountains fled even according to his command, and the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness, and all nations feared greatly, so powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of the language which God had given him. Plain old inadequate Enoch, whose name is now synonymous with transcendent righteousness. The next time you're tempted to paint your self-portrait, sort of dismal gray, outlined by lackluster beige, just remember that so have this kingdom's most splendid men and women been so tempted. And I say to you, as Joshua said to the tribes of Israel, as they faced one of their most difficult tasks, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There is, of course, one source of despair more serious than all the rest. It is linked with poor preparation of a far more serious order. It is the opposite of sanctification. It is the most destructive discouragement in time or eternity. It is transgression against God. It is depression embedded in sin. Here your most crucial challenge, once recognizing the seriousness of your mistakes, will be to believe that you can change, that there can be a different you, 
To disbelieve that is a satanic device designed to discourage and defeat and destroy you. When you get home tonight, fall on your knees and thank your Father in heaven that you belong to a church and have grasped a gospel which promises repentance to those who will pay its price. Repentance is not a foreboding word. It is, following faith, the most encouraging word in the Christian vocabulary. Repentance is simply the scriptural invitation for growth, for improvement, for progress, for renewal. You can change. You can be anything you want to be in righteousness. If there's one lament I cannot abide, and I hear it from adults as well as students, it is the poor, pitiful, withered cry, well, that's just the way I am. If you want to talk about discouragement, that's one that discourages me. Though not a swearing man, I'm always sorely tempted when hearing that. Please spare me your speeches about that's just the way I am. I've heard that from too many people who wanted to sin and call it psychology. And I use the word sin again to cover a vast range of habits, some seemingly innocent enough, which nevertheless bring discouragement and doubt and despair. You can change anything you want to change, and you can do it very fast. That's another satanic sucker punch, that it takes years and years and eons of eternity to repent. It takes exactly as long to repent as it takes you to say, I'll change, and mean it. Of course, there will be problems to work out and restitutions to make. You may well spend, indeed, you'd better spend the rest of your life proving your repentance by its permanence. But change, growth, renewal, repentance, these can come for you as instantaneously as they came for Alma and the sons of Mosiah. And even if you have serious amends to make, it is not likely that you will qualify for the term the vilest of sinners, which is Mormon's phrase in describing those young men. Yet as Alma recounts his own experience in the 36th chapter of the book which bears his name, it appears to me that this change was as instantaneous as it was stunning. Do not misunderstand. Repentance is not easy or painless or convenient. It is a bitter cup from hell. But only Satan who dwells there would have you think that a necessary and required acknowledgment is more distasteful than permanent residence. Only he would say, you cannot change, you won't change, you've tried to change and you haven't. It's too long and too hard. Give up, give in, don't repent. You're just the way you are. That, my friends, is a lie born out of desperation, and I ask you not to fall for it. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. You'll find your own experiences described there. You'll find spirit and strength there. You'll find solutions and counsel. Nephi says, The words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. Pray earnestly and fast with purpose and devotion. Some difficulties like devils come not out save by fasting and by prayer. Serve others. The heavenly paradox is that that is the only way you can save yourself. Be patient. As Robert Frost said, the only way out is through. Keep moving. Keep trying. Have faith. Several decades ago, an acquaintance of mine left a small southern Utah town to travel east. He'd never traveled much beyond his little hometown and certainly had never ridden a train. 
But his older sister and brother-in-law, now living in the east, needed him under some special circumstances, and his parents agreed to free him from the farm work in order to go. They drove him to Salt Lake City and put him onto the train. New Levi's, not so new boots, very frightened and 18 years old. There was one major problem, and it terrified him. He had to change trains in Chicago. Furthermore, it involved an overnight layover, and that was a fate worse than death. His sister had written, carefully outlining when the incoming train would arrive and how and when and where he was to catch the outgoing line, but he was still terrified. And then his humble, plain, sun-scarred little father did something no one in this room should ever forget. He said, Son, wherever you go in this church, there will be somebody to stand by you. That's part of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. And with that, he stuffed into the pocket of his calico shirt the name of a bishop he had taken the time to identify from sources at church headquarters. If the boy had troubles or became discouraged or afraid, he was to call the bishop and ask for help. Well, the train ride progressed rather uneventfully until it pulled into Chicago. And even then, the young man did pretty well at collecting his luggage and making it to the nearby hotel room, which had been prearranged by his brother-in-law. But then the clock began to tick, and night began to fall, and faith began to fail. Could he find his way back to the station? Could he find the right track? Could he find the right train? What if it was late? What if he was late? What if he lost his ticket? What if his sister had made a mistake and he ended up in New York? What if? What if? What if? Without those well-worn boots ever hitting the floor, that big, raw-boned 18-year-old flew across the room, nearly pulled the telephone off the wall, and, fighting back tears and troubles, called this bishop. Alas, the bishop was not home, but aha, the bishop's wife was. She spoke long enough to reassure him that absolutely nothing could go wrong that night. He was, after all, safe in the room, and what he needed more than anything was a night's rest. Then she said, If tomorrow morning you are still concerned, follow these directions. You can be with our family and other ward members until train time. We will make sure you get safely on your way. She then carefully spelled out the directions, had him repeat them back, and suggested a time for him to come. With slightly more peace in his heart, he knelt by his bed as he had every night of his eighteen years, and he waited for morning to come. Somewhere in the night, the hustle and bustle of Chicago in the 1930s distilled into peaceful sleep. At the appointed hour next, he set out. A long walk, then catch a bus. Watch for the stop. Walk a block, change sides of the street, one more bus. Count the streets carefully, two more to go, one more to go. Here it is. Let me out of this bus. It worked, just like she said it would. <laughs> then his world crumbled, crumbled before his very eyes. He stepped out of that bus only to see the longest stretch of shrubbery and grass he had ever seen in his entire life. She had said something about a park. But he thought a park was a dusty acre in southern Utah with a netless tennis court in the corner. <laughs> Here he stood, looking in vain at the vast expanse of Lincoln Park, with not a friendly face anywhere in sight. There was no bishop, no ward, no meeting house. And the bus, the bus was gone. It struck him that he had no idea where he was or what combination of connections with who knows what number of buses would be necessary to get him back to the station. Suddenly he felt more alone and overwhelmed than any moment in his life. 
As the tears welled up in his eyes, he despised himself for feeling so afraid. But he was, and the tears would not stop. He stepped off the sidewalk, away from the bus, into the edge of the park. He needed some privacy for his tears, as only an 18-year-old from southern Utah could fully appreciate. But as he stepped away from the noise, fighting to control his emotions, he thought he heard something hauntingly familiar in the distance. He moved cautiously in the direction of the sound. First he walked, then he walked quickly. The sound was stronger and firmer, and certainly it was familiar. Then he started to smile, a smile which erupted into an audible laugh, and he started to run. He wasn't sure that was the most dignified thing for a newcomer to Chicago to do, but this was no time for discretion. He ran, and he ran fast. He ran as fast as those cowboy boots would carry him, over shrubs, through trees, around the edge of a pool. Though hard to you, this journey may appear. Grace shall be as your day. The sounds were crystal clear, and he was now weeping newer, different tears. For there, over a little rise, huddled around a few picnic tables and bundles of food, was the bishop and his wife and their children and most of the families of this little ward. The date? July 24, 1934. The sound? A slightly off-key a cappella rendition of lines that even a boy from southern Utah would recognize. Gird up your loins, fresh courage take. Our God will never us forsake. And soon we'll have this tale to tell. All is well. All is well. It was Pioneer Day. The gathering to which he'd been invited was a 24th of July celebration. Knowing that it was about time for the boy to arrive, the ward had thought it a simple matter to sing a verse or two of Come, Come, Ye Saints to let him know their location. Elisha, with a power known only to the prophets, had counseled the king of Israel on how and where and when to defend against the warring Syrians. The king of Syria, of course wishing to rid his armies of this prophetic problem, so said, and I quote, Therefore sent he hither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city round about. They compassed the city both with horses and with chariots. Now, if Elisha is looking for a good time to be depressed, this is it. His only ally is the president of the local teachers' quorum. It is one prophet and one lad against the world, and the boy is petrified. He sees the enemy everywhere, difficulty and despair and problems and burdens everywhere. The bus is gone, and all he can see is Chicago. With faltering faith, the boy cries, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha's reply? Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. They that be with us? Now, just an Israelite minute here. Faith is fine, 
And courage is wonderful. But this is ridiculous, this little boy thinks. There are no others with us. He can recognize a Syrian army when he sees one. And he knows that a child and an old man are not strong odds against it. But Elisha's promise? Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord God, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. You write it down in your little black book that in the gospel of Jesus Christ you have help. And you have it on both sides of the veil. And you must never forget that one thing. When disappointment and discouragement strike, and they will, you remember and never forget that if your eyes could be opened, you would see horses and chariots of fire as far as the eye could see, riding at reckless speed to come to your protection. They will always be there, these armies of heaven, in defense of Abraham's seed. My beloved young brothers and sisters, we'll find the place which God for us prepared. And on the way, we'll make the air with music ring and shout praises to our God and King. And above all the rest, this tale will tell. All is well. All is well. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Dealing with Hard Times with thoughts from Richard G. Scott and Jeffrey R. Holland. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.